host, let's get at it, American Hawks. And, you know, I mean, I wouldn't throw Phantasm at him. That's a whole other discussion we could have. But, like, you're just, like, begging to be like, well, what if you put Phantasm and now you've got Mango out of this cascade? But I do think that cold IPAs are meant to be – I, I don't even know a beer to compare them to from the old days because I don't know if my palate's that old. But I feel like it's kind of like a drier version of anything Sierra Nevada would have made 20 years ago. Just this much more, you know, because all of those Sierra Nevada beers have a little C40, C60, C15, whatever. Whereas this is like pills, rice, maybe sugar yeast it's it's almost uh, and i kind of explained it this way i was like it's almost like a smash beer but you've got like you know granted rice is not a malt but it kind of is so you've got like a this dual malt smash beer that's really accentuating the hops and that's what the creator kevin davy will just say over and over and over and over and over and over and over it's a showcase for the hops this is not a hazy ipa we're bringing in the other proteins there's no specialty malts. There's none of this other stuff. It's really just this like crisp, dry, finishing at like 1004 to 1008 because of the rice and or sugar. I don't know. I like it. I've kind of, I stopped buying them. I actually was like looking at my fridge and I was like, do I have one of these to like drink while I talk to people? But I'm not over it, but I got to a point where I was just like, ah, I need something that's like 4%. And delicious, which you know, a cold IPA rides that six, six point five, seven. I've had some that are almost like up by eight. So you're also working that alcohol in, which a couple of brewers talked about the importance of the sweetness that you will get from the alcohol in the mix versus the sweetness from the malt, which again is something you don't think about a lot, but it's there. And there's a sweetness from hops, there's a sweetness from alcohol, there's a sweetness from malt. But in this beer, I feel like the point is to really drop the malt super low. So now you're dealing with hops, alcohol. You could call it kind of in the realm of an of a double IPA, but then again, I think most double IPAs would have at least some specialty malt in their color, balance. I, I feel like cold IPA kind of I won't say it doesn't care about balance, but I think it's trying to prove a point that for too long, a lot of beers have been like really gluey and gummy and then hoppy almost secondarily, whereas this is like very primarily hoppy. Yeah. So when I think of hazy IPA and I'm not like, I like good hazies, but like I think of it like as a flabby kind of mouthfeel. Like, it's, it's kind of, I don't know how else to explain it. Like, there's, like, a flabbiness to the mouthfeel. And so this seems like you want to be really crisp. So if you're doing a water profile, you probably want to accentuate that uh, sulfate in your sulfate to chloride ratio. Sure. How are you going to do Yeah, don't ask me about that shit. <laughs> uh, what, what kind you of guys don't worry about that. I, I, anything, I would say anything you would put in a, a light, hoppy beer. I mean... Yeah, I don't mess with, you know, I have a dumb rule of thumb. I'm like, a little gypsum if it's this beer, a little bit of this if it's this beer. But, like, um, 
I assume the water chemistry would help because the hops are supposed to be so prevalent and the malt, I wouldn't say subdued, but they really want to be low in the balance, right? But you still go for like a quality, uh, I mean, do you think three of the nine or 12, so I mean, it's not a huge sample, but quarter of the brewers I've talked to like swear by North Star Pills, RAR, American. There's something about these American pills. I don't know if they don't, I don't know enough about it. I don't know if they don't process it, malt it differently. Something about them leaves it more able to dry out without. And maybe the thing is like the European counterpart needs to be step mash, needs to be decoct. I don't know what it is, but the, the American versions seem to be what everybody swears by. So let's just say 80 or 70% American pills, 20 or 30% flaked rice. If you want to sub some of that for sugar. So the best one I've had is actually 60 US pills, 20 flaked rice, 10% simple sugar, all cryo hops in Whirlpool and dry hops. And then to your point, like if you whirlpool right out of flame out, you get a surprising amount of IBUs. Like it's not like that shit doesn't exist. You know, I mean, it's still hot. It's still pulling. It's just not kind of like evaporating off nearly as many um, of those notes as volatiles. Now for the adjunct, you keep mentioning rice. Like, do you think that like, corn or flaked barley or flaked wheat would still work or is it really like flaked rice as an emphasis i think you could use any of it but i think flaked rice gives you the points without the flavor impact and again what i've been led to believe is like this thing is just supposed to highlight hop so if you could it's almost like you could throw in sugar instead of that rice but for some reason people i don't know if rice leaves a little bit more body and beerness to it but yeah i've only i only know one brewery that's done flaked corn and that's shells and they're a respectable legit you know been around since like the 1850s brewery but that's kind of like what they would do for most lagers anyway i feel like what they did was they took a lager recipe they would already do and then just made a lot of excuses to to like experiment with these new hops that they have which is totally legit I mean, that's, again, kind of why I brought this. It's like a cold IPA could very easily just be a premium rice lager from Japan, but the hops are what gets it, right? These hops, whether you put them in boil, whirlpool, fermentation hop, all of the above, you know, I've been led to believe that, like, not the old school way of thinking of dry hop, not in a post-fermentation beer, but these want to go in almost like you do a hazy ironically but you want to get them in the mix you want to get them kind of churning up with the yeast activity but because this grist doesn't have all of what a hazy ipa would bring it kind of does a little something different but every i i mean i would say 80 percent of them that i've had are rice there's something about the rice that dries it out gets out of the way um the corn ones i've had are good they're fun, but somebody would argue like, oh, that's not to style. And you're like, where's the style guidelines, jerk? 
<laughs> so um so you, you handed on something somebody already asked is like this this is obviously a style that's in flux it's not very well defined although we're kind of pointing a direction right. with it um but will the other will will all asked a question um about like so pro whirlpool like the amount of time it takes them to cool down like a flame out hop edition versus like a homebrew hop like flame out hop edition like so, so when we're talking about this, we're talking about like a like a homebrew flame out edition, basically. Or are we? Or is that what the pro guys are doing too? Is like their flame out as well. So this is Will 2.0. Is that what you're saying? Well, well he's the better Will. Oh, you're Will 2.0. Okay, I see. Uh, I don't know. I don't. So I will tell you the Northern Brewer kits that taste absolutely delicious. We dumped them in. At real flame out, we didn't cool it down at all. So we're talking two ten, um, whirlpool down to probably. How long did it, How long did it take you to cool it? Well, we didn't. Did cool you it. like put your like, like immersion chiller in there? No, like that's what I'm saying. Like I, I believe we just put them in at at true flame out. So two ten. So again, I think that's an interesting way to go about it because you're gonna. Still get these, uh, these hop aromas, flavors. But I will tell you that Kevin Davy, the guy who kind of invented it, very much talks about brewing it like a traditional IPA. So you might have a 60, 15, and 5, or 10, and 5, whatever. You know, he, our, I would say the Northern Brewer kit is a little bit already uh, taking a little bit of liberty, but I think it's because this beer proves a lot of points. Like a, it proves that like a lager strain no longer is this weird thing that has to be fermented at like 55 degrees. It proves another thing that like you can throw in at Whirlpool at 210 and get this different result than I'm, you know, I'm kind of along the lines of what you might be suggesting. Like I would usually, let it cool to 180, throw in these whirlpool hops because I'm making up for the fact that I don't have this giant fucking duh, 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 like heat exchanger. Um, yeah, I, I think if you put them in, if you put your hops in at homebrewer flame out <laughs> and let them hang out, like you are still going to pull, especially if you're smart about those hops. Like Chris England, who some people might know, um, in his pro brewery life, uh, he puts these in at like at true flame out, and then, um, but on a homebrew scale, he would tell me to cool it to 180 first. So I don't, I think there's something about getting a little bit. Oh, but he uses cryo hops. That was my point. Sorry, I got distracted. Um, so I mean, there's there's all these differences. There's hops, cryo hops. It's just. I would say whatever you find works for what used to be an IPA <laughs> before the hazies, try that with this grist and this yeast combo and see if you like it. I mean, you might, if you don't like a bone dry IPA, I would not brew this style. I will say that. Like, I also think it's worth doing because it's absolutely delicious and a lot of things move out of the way. But, you know, if you don't like, a yellow bone dry 
I don't even know what the hell to call I mean, before this dial came up, I don't even know what to compare it to. Like, maybe Saga, which is a, a beer here in the Midwest that's fairly dry and yellow. But this is, it's just like, it's unlike anything. And that's why I hate that, like, people want to instantly hate against it and, like, compare it to other things. I'm like, well, just try it. Don't even try brewing it. Like, just go try to find one. Like, don't waste your day and five gallons of beer brewing one. Just go find two or three and see if you like it. If you don't, then, well, there you go. Like, it doesn't matter. But I think... I don't know. These beers came around, especially here in Minnesota. They came around right around the end of spring when we needed something really light. And then to just see brewers get really excited about this thing. All of a sudden, granted, CBC was here this year. But, man, I swear, right before CBC happened here in, like, early May, late May, I can't remember what that was, like, it was just, like, cold IPAs collaborations, single brewery brews. And I've already felt like it's kind of slowed down, but then this week I saw an, a newsletter that said like, you know, 12 more came out. So to uh, Chris England's so point. What's, what's, I, yeah. Or, yeah, go, you can go for that. But uh, after that, um, Alex wants to know what your favorite Northern Brew recipe kit is. Okay, yeah. I was just going to say like, you know, to the point, like Chris England talks about, you know, there is on the craft beer side, there's the business of selling beer, right? And if you call a thing the new thing that everybody wants, you'll probably sell a bunch. But it's like, you know, the version I almost went and bought today is from a brewery that does it with Chico yeast, really cold. You could argue that, yes, that's still a cold IPA, but somebody else could argue that, like, it's not, it's not. And I don't know what the fuck cold IPA means. I still don't know, but I almost don't care. Maybe it's because it's like, that's still cold. I mean, 62 is still pretty cold. But the idea is like, why would you take something new with this very specific set of suggested brewing guidelines and then immediately just be like, well... We've got two use strains, so we're going to do this. We're going to do it at this time. I mean, it's like it's not worth brewing if you're not going to try to do the thing, right, and see what it does. And then if it doesn't do the thing you like, you you never do it again. But there's a lot of breweries, to Chris's point, that are like, oh, I'm just going to brew an IPA and filter it and call it a cold IPA. And you're like, well, that's not – you're supposed to get in the mix. You're supposed to, like, have fun with – this lager yeast warm and these hops that maybe you haven't used. It's not Mosaic and Sabro and Strata. It's fucking all the sea hops from the old days and trying to kind of create this like very original IPA flavor in a in a kind of a new way. All right. So remind me, what was the other thing? Favorite Northern Brewer kit. Uh, I don't know. It's been a minute since I've brewed one. I brew one from for work every now and then. I honestly think like the Potter's beer, which, goddamn you, Chris England. That's a Chris England joint from like early two thousands. Potter's beer is absolutely phenomenal. Like a single, a Belgian table beer, Belgian single, whatever you want to call it. Um, 
I brewed it many times back in the day, open fermented it, regular fermented it. I just love it, especially this time of year. That is excellent. Um, I'll say since my my new tour of working there, you know, we shoot these videos for each kit, and I don't necessarily brew them, but I get to definitely drink them. I really like the Northernator Doppelbach, which is one that maybe consider brewing now because it's almost fall to have in the winter. Man, that thing is uh, like a 9% lager beast. So delicious. So, um, yeah, Potter's beer is is rad there's so many it's funny every now and then we get tapped or we get volunteered to go into the warehouse and pick and pack orders and those are some of my best days as far as ideas because i forget what we actually offer until i'm out there with a cart in my gym shorts and i'm like writing stuff down i'm like oh the goza oh all of these saisons all you know all these bourbon barrel somethings and i try to think of like a part of the year that they fit into and then other things come up and you forget but man there's there's so many beers that we offer that i want to brew that i just haven't for sure i mean that was the same back in the day too it's like dawson was just like turning out recipes and because he was brewing them on the test batch i was like well that means i don't have to brew them i just get to drink them sweet thanks it's like if you worked in marketing for a brewery, which I did, and then, you know, you're, you're responsible for telling the stories of these great beers, but all you have to do is, like, know the last 10% of it, right? Tell me how we got here. What does it taste like? Oh, this is what I think it tastes like. It tastes fucking great. <laughs> so we're going to talk about me days. Anybody... Got a mead? If I'm perfectly honest, the last mead that I made was like three years ago. I actually found a bottle of it, and it's still as disgusting today as it was three years ago. Oh man! It, it was it was a total I, absolute fail. I did a mead um, a few months back, and I had tr I got. Um, at a festival down in uh, so Southern California Homebrewers Festival, someone had this low um, alcohol 3.5 mead um, with uh, blue butterfly pea, rose, and um, orange blossom. And so oh. I tried I tried to make that up, and um, <clears throat> it um, came out a little stronger than I intended. It was around seven percent, and so <laughs> I, which is fine for me. That's still very very low. Um, but but the I I because I, I was starting from scratch because all I knew was the ingredients the base ingredients and so I I took the and I made teas with the different ingredients to find out what proportion I wanted to um, to put in the, the, the flower teas and then um, and then after it was done I back sweetened it and I <clears throat> was pouring out you know me I measured out sample sizes and then I was putting in a measured amount of um, of uh, honey and I ended up I found that three percent um, uh, 0.3% um, back sweeten was the right number. And it was all said and done, and I tasted it, and I'm like, ah, this tastes like tannic shit. I just, it tastes like it, it kind of had a wine flavor. 
which I wasn't happy <laughs> with. Um, and, I, and the event that I was doing it for was my niece's wedding. And so I'm like, you know what needs is carbonation. So I just racked up 20, 20 PSI of carbonation in that thing. I served it. It came out like champagne. I served in champagne glasses. It went faster than anything. I had, I had two beers on tap, and, and this, uh, this mead was the first thing to kick. They, people loved it. So I call, I'm calling it Celebration Mead. Um, the, uh, the key is the 20, is, is the 20 PSI. <laughs> oh, man. Putting it on a bottle bomb, boy. No, I had it in a little mini keg, like a little half, a uh, little two and a half. Um, I served it right off of the two and a half. Uh, right. Uh, no, morning. what I'm saying is like it would be a bottle bomb if it was not in a keg. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This stuff, uh, I don't think I could. I had bottles I was going to do, but they couldn't. They wouldn't be able to hold PSI. I got to go get a bottle opener. Y'all cool with that? Everybody take a. Sure. Do your thing, man. Two minutes. Yeah, but that that um that mead was good enough that uh the DJ supposedly worked used to work at um Bevmo uh, in purchasing. I don't know why he's a DJ working at Bevmo, but uh, he's like, "Would you sell this?" I'm like, "No, I don't have a license. That's not happening." <laughs> Haven, I can't pronounce that word to ask that question, so you're gonna have to ask it. I think it's sizer is the carbon is the term for carbonated mead. I think. I think it might be apple, or it might be a cider mead, or I might be misremembering. Um, I believe the closest name that this thing would have been, it would have been the Ramamel, Ramamel, because it has rose and flowers, and it's low alcohol. So it's not a hydromel, I mean, it's kind of a hydromel, but it's a Ramamel, Rotomel, Ramamel, whatever, because the rose in it, it has its own category, a low alcohol, um, Rose. What's a melamel then? Does anyone know that? Oh, fuck. I, I, I was looking up all that shit. Um, <laughs> Dude, I'm, I'm public education from the state of Texas. I don't know anything. <laughs> melamel is. I mean, I, I want to say it's melon, but I know that's not it. Ah, is that just a fruited mead? I think that's just a, a mead. It with might be fruit. It might be fruit. generic. Yeah. I don't know. I. I think I've had one meat in my life and it was amazing and it was 18% and it kicked my ass. So I haven't had one since. Well, if you ever have a, a, a celebration coming up, uh, ask me for that recipe. I'll give it to you. It's super simple. I, I, that might be something my wife would even enjoy. So the, funny thing, the funny thing was the guy who, uh, who made it I was asking about what's in it, and he goes, "Oh, it's uh, you know, it's the rose, pe- it's the dried rose petals, it's the orange blossom, and the butterfly pea." And, and I said, "Oh, so what? What's the ratio?" He said, "Well, you know, I just grabbed whatever I grabbed from my from my garden, you know." He's full of shit. And um, so then when I went and I put in, I started putting in the ingredients in Amazon, and I put in the butterfly, um, the butterfly pea tea, um, and it says, "Oh, you might also like rose, uh, dried rose and." Orange blossom. I'm like that motherfucker. He just put in one ingredient, and then I Amazon kicked the other two for him. <laughs> We've got a few uh, really rad meaderies here in Texas that have served sparkling mead, and it, and it's like they'll can it, and you can go find it at stores and stuff, and it and it's pretty awesome. Like it's it's uh again, it's pretty dry finishing, but the carbonation kind of gives it that nice little kick. 
Will, I was going to ask you, where are you when I saw your Texas area code? You're northwest, right? Northeast? Um, so that's where my phone number is. I live down here in San Antonio, so. Um, gotcha. Okay. And then Alex lives in uh, Houston. And then uh, Havo here is another Texan who uh, goes in between El Paso and Austin. Damn. Holy shit. Okay. Woo! It's a long drive. But, but and we, I am nice, and, and nice I, and fixed, you, So I see somebody. Asked, I actually got to have a beer a couple weeks ago. Somebody asked sizer term for carbonated mead. No, sizer is a kind of a hybrid of uh, apple cider and honey, basically God. using cider as your water, right, to create a mead-like beverage. So what would you call a mead that is about 7% with uh, rose, with, um, with, the, with the different flower, dried flowers, and highly carbonated? Uh, rose thorn? Uh, I mean, it would still be, I think it would, are you asking if it's a mellow mill? I mean, I think if it's anything besides just honey, it becomes a mellow melt, even though that seems unfair to that beverage, because that is fairly I, innocent enough. It's not like a black currant. It's not like a big chunk of, you know, a jalapeno pepper or something like that. I think the rose makes it a rotomel. That's right. I actually heard that phrase. Okay, that's crazy you said that. I heard that phrase recently because of so I'm, I'm doing this. Somebody gave me more credit than is worth, as always. Uh, what's that? Who's talking? Sounds like someone was giving feedback. Oh, yeah. I mean, so I'm doing this weird, like, mead challenge with the doing it most guys on YouTube. So nine different channels threw in three different recipe or uh, ingredients and it boiled down to lavender rose and vanilla that's what we have to work with so not what i picked at all um but i was talking to fletty the other day and he said that he's made meads before with rose petals that he that are called rotomels or and i was like well what if we use rose hips that's still a derivative of rose but it sounds like kind of a disgusting combo but i bet you money will figure out a way to make that fun but you know i put like oak and primary i went for ingredients that would help people figure out how to better make mead and go figure the votes picked the most randomest shit you'd ever want to throw into a mead That'll be fine. I mean, you know, it's not like we all have to do the same thing. We just have to figure out a different way to use it. So I want to get back. I don't have to go like necessarily anytime soon, but if anybody wants to talk, so when Will and I started talking like last February about this, we, we talked a lot about smoked beer, smoked malt, and then the middle part of my year just turned into personal shit show so i apologize for that we thought we would do 
kind of like a crowdsource smoke beer, and then we would all kind of talk about, you know, oh, what do you get from the mesquite? What do you get from the oak? Oak, it didn't happen. So if anybody did come to talk about smoke, so I will say the one thing is I'm, so on my mead day celebration, this is a smoked mead that we did almost three or four years ago. So the idea was like, we joked, we made a Snoop Dogg joke. We were like, smoke mead every day. And then our friend Fleddy was like, what the fuck would that, how would we do that? And we started talking about it. So this is a mead that started on a grill with uh, mesquite pellets and orange blossom. And he basically stirred it. He kind of smoked this honey by exposing the top layer to smoke over and over and over. Fermented it out. It's pretty good. Even it's got to be three years old at this point. It tastes surprisingly good. Its first sip is way more floral than it's ever been. But the back end of it is pretty woody, smoky. It's not necessarily campfire. It's almost like a little more food smoke. So, But that had been our plan. So if anybody wants to talk about smoke malt, I haven't messed around with it as much as I wanted to this year. But I'm about to going into the fall. And I think part of that is just giving up on the idea. So I want to do these little mini batches with these malts that were sent to me from Portland. It's a mesquite, an oak, and a maple. And I just kept, I just kept running out of time to do it with Pills malt. So I think what I'm gonna do is just use Pills DME, steep the smoked grain, and see what that gives me. Maybe in the future I'll be able to do it full scale, but this is the thing with doing videos. It's like, well, what do you what what do you want to do versus what do you have time to do? And what are waiting what are people waiting for you to do? So um I think I'm just gonna do it with some DME. I found DME to be the most kind of innocent malt profile and sugar um producer that I know. But does anybody have any Question? I'm gonna go combo loco. So there's some stuff that people are interested in, like Nor Norwegian farmhouse ales, and I'm curious about smoke. So what 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 role does smoke play in the Norwegian farmhouse ales that you experienced, and how how does that all kind of interplay? Yeah, in the ones that I've had, it's actually really important. I would say it's I want to say it's second important to the juniper, but I actually think it's first important because if they're doing it the way that when I went to Norway and saw it done, it is how they, I mean, smoke real wood is how they fire the kettle. So you're just kidding, kind of getting this smoke influence all day long, like over, I don't know what you call that, convex, concave, whatever. Um, you know, like the juniper is in a lot of these beers, they're steeping it the night before it's in all of the water sources but the smoke to me so in Voss the smoke comes from how the fire is fueled so if you go to like Stordal which I've never been to in person but people have sent me stuff from it and it's just like they actually take a pale malt and slow kiln it over alderwood not even like I don't know if Vireman, I don't know if those Vireman Beechwoods and 
greased cherry woods if they're dried over it as much as they're hit with it once they're so you know this malt is this malt it is kilned it is ready to go but we're gonna wet it and hit it with smoke whereas like these these alderwood smoked in Norway are they are kilned with smoked heat and it's it's noticeable in how much more in depth and saturated it is so I would say depending where you're at in Norway it could be less important but I I do feel like true farmhouse ales aren't being brewed over propane tanks you know they're not being brewed over like dark star burners and bio banjos and um, bio classics and so I feel like it's pretty important because that's how a true farmhouse brewer would actually heat the mash now whether that's in the malt or just in the liquid but I was shocked you know once I went and saw it being done I was like that's insane but they're also brewing it you know like Ivar brews it for like 14 hours so of course it's going to get all this smoke in the liquid but his malts are not necessarily smoked at all he does like a combo of like 80 pills 20 oats because that's what his farm would have done 200 years ago the idea is like you're mimicking what your farm would have grown even if your farm no longer grows malt the idea is like oh i'm going to pay tribute by doing 80 20 pills oats mash but man that i mean their brew days are just so ridiculously longer so I kept was he trying to like cut corners and he was like he wasn't offended but he just thought it was funny it's so very was he american like... of me to come in and try to be like let's let's make this shorter he's like why don't you just sit the fuck back and watch what's going on <laughs> like okay so so is he using like store-bought pilsner malts from like a, a local supplier and then like just he was just mashing and doing everything else with fire or was that like a locally grown malt from some other maltster there in in their village no in that case and they've even in the three years since i've been which is ridiculous i swear i'm getting these episodes out and y'all are gonna be like mind blown but like when i was there he went down there there was a guy at a shop that owns a pro brewery who would bring in sacks for the local brewery so he bought i can't even remember what it was i've got video of it but it's it's Weirman or Castle or something. Um, but I feel like a lot of these guys are trying to get back to a place where they do grow it. I mean, I know that Ivar is trying to grow grain. I've seen experiments over the last couple of years where they buy unmalted grain and like grow it in the creek and let it hang out in a creek for three days. It's just like... I feel like there's a small subset of people in Norway who are trying to slowly figure out how their ancestors might have done it, which is really cool to see, right? They're trying to tap back into this this idea of, you know, doing it all. But they have no shame in having to buy modified commercial bag malt. They There's definitely no one um, putting this the speed bump on brewing because of that i think in the end uh most people think that their brew house itself their brew cellar has enough character uh to lend to a beer 
maybe they've got their own Kvike. Maybe they're using like a Jurnus Kvike that's been slightly evolved because of being in their cellar. I mean, I think that's the idea. It's like they realize they can't do it all from scratch. I think they want to, and they're on their way back to that. But I think right now the Kvike is more important than the homegrown hops or the homegrown malt and the home kiln malt. The Kvike is still the thing that is going to kind of work the magic. Although I I have no doubt that if you had 100% homegrown malt hops, I mean, it's going to do something very different and magical. But right now I feel like the, you know, the focus and the emphasis is still on the Kvike. So, strains, strains. so so speaking of Kvike, um so so most of the Kvike we get here is like it's an isolate of some you know imperial va imperial whoever they're picking out an isolate so um for in your experience like when you have like an actual Kvike culture from norway versus like the isolates we get here what, what kind of differences are you seeing I feel like they're way, I mean, if you can believe it, they're even more active. I do believe they just have like this layer of flavor. And like my friend Ivar would explain it in this way that like these, you know, whether it's a slurry or these dried flakes that you've dried from the slurry, they, they expect, they almost deserve a certain kind of work, but they definitely expect a certain kind of work. And over the years, they've gotten good at fermenting. You could almost argue, and I haven't thought about this, this is kind of nice. You could almost argue the humans and the yeast in this point, or the yeast culture, kind of have a very uh, symbiotic relationship, right? Because the, the, the human is willing to make this very specific yeast. It's mashed high, it's mashed long, it's always boiled long, like the shit's an insanely long brew day and i think that's because they know these these kvikes want these really deeply boiled and caramelized sugars and they still chew through them whereas like i don't know if once you singulate them are they still that intense so it is true right like these labs unless they're making a blend like kviking from imperial is a blend of three single strain kvikes. But the idea is like a kvike could be five yeast strains and three kind of question mark strains. I mean, they, they won't call them wild. They won't call them bacteria. It's just kind of, you know, you're going to get different. They're definitely cleaner kvikes on an indigenous scale than there are. Uh, there's cleaner kvikes. There's more complex kvikes. There's kvikes that are supposed to, that want that like hard boiled, as they call it, work versus the raw ale, like something that maybe was never boiled or boiled for like five minutes, just enough to sterilize it. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny to think about because it's been so long since I've been there, but none of that's changed, right? Only what I know here has changed. And if anything, they're they're getting more. They're really trying to like. They're trying to convince UNESCO to kind of like dial into this. They're trying to. They're really trying to get. 
farmhouse brewing and Kvike as part of farmhouse brewing onto kind of like the international landscape, even more than it is just for a bunch of home brewers or pro brewers that want to make beer quicker. So when is the Chip Walton uh, Horn and Doll Farmhouse Ale Festival um, tour going to happen? That would be cool. I don't know. I, I don't know. I know that Evar is trying to get here. Like now that COVID seems to have kind of leveled out. You know, he was supposed to come here a couple of years ago, and then all the shit went down. So, I I mean, I'm not doing it without my buddy Evar because Evar will come over here and be like, "This is how we do it." Get Lars over here. Ooh. Man, that'd be so. I mean, they've already done it in other cities, right? But it would be, it'd be super fun if I could get like the twelve or fourteen people I know to commit to come here. Woo! It'd be fun as hell, man. Everybody be in the Twin Cities. But it's also something I haven't messed with a lot. I mean, I was just cleaning out the brew room and throwing out a bunch of stuff I don't need. And I came across all these jars in the freezer, and I was like, man. This was really my obsession like two years ago, and it's kind of still worthy of being an obsession, right? There's so many other things that other people are doing better, but I was like, this is one thing that I kind of already know a lot about. I know a lot of people that know about it, even if I don't know about it. It'd be great to, I don't know, it's it's weird, right? It's like Kavike blew up, but then it kind of fell off. But it's like it doesn't deserve to fall off. It definitely deserves to be kind of nerded out on much more further. But that's the way things go over here. I mean, you know, things come and go real quick. It's a little curious that like the uh, the trends are like, how do I brew ales really hot? And now people want to brew lagers, at least in a relative sense, really hot. Right. Cold IPA. So basically, we want to brew everything warmer. Is what I've decided. Yeah, it probably it definitely moves things along quicker. And then depending what you're talking about, I mean it might not hurt it. I don't know. I I, I wonder how much myth making is in loggers once you start talking about cold IPA. Granted, not every logger wants to be this hoppy ass, you know, beer. It doesn't. It's there's still plenty of reasons to brew a great beer that sits in lagers, but they definitely aren't cold IPAs. I mean, here in Minnesota and probably across the country, like all of a sudden we're seeing Oktoberfest, we're seeing Fest beers. I bought two of them this last week. I was just like, man, these fucking beers. But imagine how long ago that brewer brewed that shit. Like this brewer probably brewed this Fest beer in early June. I mean, that kind of makes sense. But on a commercial scale, it kind of blows your mind a little bit. Or pumpkin beers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I've seen all these posts about, like, pumpkin beer mixed packs. I'm like, who needs 12 different pumpkin beers? Uh, for the record, nobody needs pumpkin beer. It's disgusting. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm not going to go there with you. I do like a pumpkin beer, but I don't know if I need like 30 variants. Just like in a Russian Imperial Stout. Just make me a really good Russian Imperial Stout. I don't need the one in a Fernet barrel. I don't need it in a bourbon barrel. I don't need it. You know what I mean? Just like make a good, solid, fun beer to celebrate the season. 
but don't try to make money off me like eight times. <laughs> we're gonna have New, New Zealand pumpkin beers, and we're gonna have South African pumpkin beers, and German <laughs> pumpkin that, beers. That all sounds because awesome. of the hops. Um, so it's funny you mentioned barrels and some of those things because, like, I, I consider like I, f- I feel like breweries come along and like, well, this beer isn't quite good. Let's throw it in a bourbon barrel and see if we can still make money off of it. Um, is like a band aid fix. So, what are some of the band aid fixes you see people using to like correct mediocre beer? Hmm, that's a good question. I don't know. Honestly, up here still in the Midwest, upper Midwest, I think all they'd have to do is just give it a fun name. And that sounds embarrassing, but like, I don't know. I mean, really, they would just have to like, that's where marketing kicks in, right? It's like a good story, regardless of what it tastes like. I've probably fallen, you know, I've fallen a victim to many beers that are like, really good storytelling and then when you buy it you're like what <laughs> damn it so i don't know i don't know if people are i as i i don't know i don't know how to answer that question so you see a way blending but i don't think most people give a fuck about blending i don't think most people have the patience for blending i think i think most breweries just throw it out there man and they hope that diehard you know, in one strong weekend, buy most of it, and then, yeah, I don't think people are, like, throwing, unlike homebrewers, I don't think pro brewers are, like, throwing Brett into something, or I just don't think there's that nimbleness to do something wacky. They kind of just take it on the chin, or they sucker somebody into buying it. Uh, Be- Better Will always has the real questions. With uh, he's curious about if you were a pizza, what kind of pizza would you be? Man, I would be a Quad Cities uh, dill pickle pizza. <laughs> At least at the moment, man, dude. My wife and I are all about everything dill pickle, and uh, so there's a Quad City style pizza, which is Quad Cities are the four cities in Illinois and Iowa pretty far up north northwest Illinois and man there's a place in town who's who who are run by a bunch of actual quad cities people and they've got this damn dill pickle pizza dude it's dill pickle slices uh, mozzarella it is so good at the point at this point that's what I would say I mean on another day, I'd be like, I want to be some kind of brisket pizza that I've never had. Like brisket, sauce, maybe some sausages. I mean, I'm from Texas. I mean, I've been here a long time <laughs> in Minnesota, but my heart is still in Texas as far as like the best food I've ever had. And I've lived on the Gulf Coast of Alabama. Like I could argue that was the best food I ever had. But man, when I got to Texas... I'd want something that's like a mashup of like a breakfast taco and brisket. That's probably what I'd want. So is brisket your go-to barbecue cut then, or do you have a preferred barbecue cut other than brisket? Uh, I would say ribs is my probably go-to just because that is like, you get more of it. It's a little more interactive. 
ever since I was a kid, man, my birthday meal, so many birthdays when I was in my single digits up into teens as ribs. Um, but brisket, when, when I can find it, which is pretty actually common up here now at this point, but earlier on, it wasn't when we moved here, like, man, brisket is just so good. It reminds me so much of Texas. But the ribs are kind of like something you can do anywhere, right? Like Alabama's got, everybody's got ribs. So ribs are kind of a little more like user-friendly to the process and the game. But man, brisket is definitely, if I can get brisket, I would get, I honestly, like smoked turkey is what I will get. And no, like only a few places in Minnesota do it. And one of them is from Texas, and they understand. Sounds like you need a smoker. Well, I got a smoker, but I don't. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I don't use it enough. Does anybody have tips for doing turkey breast in a smoker? Uh, uh, yeah, I have do, the, do the whole turkey. Don't do the breast. Do the whole. Turkey. No, so I do a boneless, skinless turkey breast. Um, I do it at about two fifty. It's just uh, salt and pepper. It's probably two parts pepper, one part salt, and then uh, basically about. Once the turkey breast gets to about 140-ish, I wrap it in foil with a stick of butter and then finish it off. And then it just tastes like this buttery goodness. Put that butter on top or on bottom? Like it's in foil, so you just wrap it in the foil Yeah. with the butter. Well, I'll, I'll send you a uh, – I, I stole it from somewhere else. I'll send you a recipe offline, and, yeah, and I'll, I'll, get it, I'll get it to you. Uh, but I, I love that stuff. Um. And then, Will, did you really bring up Rudy's? Where are you from, Will? Rudy's is, is – I don't consider it to be good barbecue at all. Oh, but shit. It, no. Rudy's. Bro. Hey. I, is that what we're talking about? What does Chip think? No, dude. I know about some Rudy's. So, I will say, hey, the breakfast taco, the jalapeno, everything is such a good Rudy's. But I honestly liked Rudy's the whole time, even as I learned a lot about Texas barbecue in Texas while living there for like three years or four years. I always appreciated Rudy's for not being like, they weren't the cop out barbecue joint. Like that shit was always amazing. The cutter cam, the brisket, the sausage is like, I don't know, man, (laughs) there's something about Rudy's and me and my wife like are really attached to for our whole lives. And, it's just because it's like so diplomatic, right? It's so accessible. It's everywhere. It's in these weird gas stations, and but it's also really, really, really good. I buy my wife like this gift basket every year. That's the, it's like the rub, right? It's like the beef rub, but also the poultry rub, and then you get two other things. Two years ago for my birthday, she bought me a brisket <laughs> from Rube. Rudy's, and she was pissed that I guessed it before it got here. That's what Chip Walton does when he's got a flu. <laughs> nah, I threw it up in the chat. So it's uh, the, the best smoked turkey breast I've ever had was at Franklin Barbecue there in Austin. And uh, so if you're going to copy somebody, you might as well copy somebody that does it really well. And their, okay. brisket, their brisket's also phenomenal. Um, but beef or pork ribs, Chip? I mean, dude, on a daily, pork ribs, but I have 
some of my best meals of my life have been beef ribs. And I don't, I wouldn't know how to do them, and maybe I'll learn how to do them, but man, pork ribs are so, like, everyday man good vibes, but shit, dude. I had a beef rib in Spoon and Stable here. Beef ribs at Black's Market in Lockhart. Blew my buddy's mind from up here. Um, I would say beef, actually. I think, I mean, pork, you can be like, we could do it anywhere. But beef is a very specific animal. It's, oh, man, that's a fucking unique experience, honestly. Man, beef ribs. And my buddy up here, like, we came down there. And then he saw how they did them at Blacks. We went to one other place. I can't think. Then he came up here and he just... He mastered them. <laughs> I was like, this is the shit. I live in Minnesota and I have a guy that can make these bomb ass beef ribs. I would say beef. Like, I only say beef because you'll always be able to find pork. Like, but if we can keep beef ribs important and in the conversation, they're so good. I, I think beef ribs are my absolute favorite cut of barbecue ever. And that, uh, I, as much as I love a good pork rib, beef is always supreme. Yeah, I mean there was a there was a couple of like retired, older dudes here that used to smoke, in this parking lot, and they would they call them dinosaur bones, and they would do like probably three, beef ribs, then they pull the bone out because it was that tender, and then they would chop it like, uh, almost like brisket. It's like pork. It was like pot roast meets brisket. It was so crazy. And it was so good, but it would always have these giant holes in it because of where they pulled the bones out. But it was so good. Yeah, it was fun. Like, that's a funny thing. That, like, I don't know. Maybe it happened because we moved up here, but Twin Cities, like, really stepped up their barbecue game in the last 10 years. When we first got here, it was pretty dismal. We encouraged a bunch of people, but next thing you knew, all of a sudden, they were just like, and it's funny, it's a lot of it's tied to brewery tap rooms. Like a few of these brewery or these barbecue spots opened essentially because a brewery tap room gave them these, you know, All right, we'll give you Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Next thing you knew, they were able to like rent a space or lease a space or buy a space, whatever it is. So, kind of funny people up here were pretty desperate for that kind of food it's the uh, chip walton effect wherever you go good barbecue follows i guess i know and, I, uh, I, you know I Brent, i'm still gonna ask your question uh tempa or tofurkey is that a real uh, question brent just i would say temp- think twice if you're being held hostage i would say tempa i guess because tofurkey seems very complex and multi-layered whereas i feel like tempo is kind of like it's just like buying turkey right it's like buying it's like buying a base ingredient so i would say tempo i've had a couple of of like tempo and it's really nice it's smoked sometimes kind of got some bumps in it from whatever's in it i don't know if that's lentils chickpeas i don't know what's in a tempo but i would say tempo over tofurkey because it's less yeah, it's more of a base ingredient than tofurkey sounds fucking absolutely insane. Brent's answering. Hold on, everybody. 
We're not doing this. No, I, I think uh, Tempa Soy, I think. Ooh, oh, Weaver or sense. Pellet Smoker? What's your, what's your preferred smoker? I use my Weber, but I inherited a Pellet Smoker, not a Pellet, actually a Puck. A Puck Smoker, a Bradley from a friend that I've yet. I think tomorrow's going to be the day we finally, we might ruin a meal tomorrow, but in order to figure out how to use it, I think tomorrow's a fucking day, but up till now, like it's all been Weber, man. Indirect Weber heat is my jam. Okay. Yeah, but I, I, I've never had a, uh, a pellet or a puck smoker till recently, earlier this summer. And then I've never used it, so I feel like today's the day, or tomorrow's the day. Only one way to learn about it, right, is just get on there and, and uh, smoke up some meat, and if worse comes worse, you got something to add to your beans later. Yeah, 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 yeah. I feel stupid for not having done it already. Ooh, what prompted you to start chopping brew? Oh, yeah, I saw this question earlier too about black street so i mean i started chopping brew because i left northern brewer and nobody there seemed too concerned about me starting something very similar on my own but i was like all right if there's a food element it also opens all these other doors so when i left northern brewer in 2012 i basically just started this channel uh, I wish it was as popular. Man, Bruin TV is, had crazy numbers. Now I can't replicate that. But yeah, I just wanted to keep it going, honestly. Like I knew that Northern Brewer wouldn't, at the time, do it justice. So I wanted to give people somewhere else to go. And then, yeah, I've kept it going. I was thinking about it the other day. I was like, man, it's 10 years next year. That's crazy. If that was Bruin TV, it would have like 500 episodes by now, but it doesn't because it's on my work life schedule. So I've been trying to do what I can do. You know, it's basically what I find interesting, whereas Bruin TV often was like, well, what do we find interesting? Which is a little easier if you got like two or three other people kind of throwing in ideas. But yeah, man. I just wanted to keep the torch going when I left Northern Brewer. I just, nobody else is doing it quite that high production. And I would argue that I've not been able to do that because there's, there's something about having two hosts and then a video nerd to kind of like wrangle these ideas. Whereas like now it's just me. My dream has always been to kind of bring a bunch of other people into it. But so yeah, I was just basically trying to keep what I felt like was a very fun uh, communicative group together over here instead of over here. But now I'm back over here, so I I care about both sides of the brain again. You know, I do care about Northern Brewer finding people and. So someone else's question earlier was about Black Street. So like Northern Brewer is not as independently owned as the last time I worked there. And or when I left, I left because it wasn't as independently owned all of a sudden. And, you know, 
we brought in Austin, we brought in Inventors because those those companies specifically wanted to find a way out. It's not like we went out and bullied them, which is, I don't know if this will ever go public, but that's one thing I definitely want to be known is like, we didn't go out <laughs> shaking these companies down. All of a sudden, just a lot of homebrewing companies were interested in getting out and for, you know, to their to their credit, getting what they can out of it. So now Northern Brewer, as an umbrella, owns Northern Brewer, Midwest, Adventures, and Austin. It's tough to swallow, I know, for a lot of people in Michigan and Texas. I mean, I started in Austin. If I, was a, if I lived in Austin right now, I'd be like, what the fuck? Where's my store? But it's it's just weird, and I can't say it any way other than that. It's just if we want our hobby to survive, it probably can't. it's just like a lot of things, it's just like craft beer, it's just like a lot of other things. It's just like it's tough for so many players to be out and trying to feel good about what they're doing, whereas a lot of other people are interested in being like, well, this is what I did, and I want to dip out. So now Northern Brewer is shipping a lot of stuff, and we've all been in the warehouse a lot and that's all I can say about that I mean like it's tough right it's capitalism it's it's weird to see like a hobby go into that space but it really is a reality and it's been tough like the last month because I'm on the social side and the digital marketing side there have a lot of people that have just been very pissed I mean you bring four companies into one you know, things slow down drastically, shipping dates and stuff. So it's it's tough. I know we're getting back to that point that it is, I mean, even a powerhouse kind of logistical hot spot like we have. And we're not like hiring evil fucking geniuses. I mean, we're just like hiring really badass people to do what they do. But it's just like, man, yeah, you... It's almost like you forget how much people homebrew until you're like, oh, people homebrew this much, even in the summertime. That's the scary part. It's like, come fall when it actually usually picks up, you're just like, oh, shit. So it's tough. I mean, it's weird. The industry is, you know, you've got all the brew tubers that are doing their thing, and then you've got the industry folks and... It's just this thing that I'm constantly, as a home brewer first, and anything else second. Whether that's marketer or videographer, it's just, it's always funny to see. But I want it to survive. I mean, you don't not want it to survive. It needs to survive for the hobby, for the competitions, for the industry. I mean, you know, for everything. So I will say that, like, Northern Brewer is definitely busting their asses i know they've gotten their asses handed to them a bunch in the last couple of months but we're busting our asses we're trying to do what we can do we're brewing i think it's hard really hard right now because i know um homebrewing in general is in a big lull like it seems like the whole thing um some of the youtubers i've talked to they talk about the lack of clicks or the, the lesser amount of clicks um i know even uh talking to some of the, the brewing websites like they've gotten fewer clicks and stuff lately 
and uh, and even like homebrew shops. Like I know our local homebrew shop in San Antonio is about to shut down here in the next month or so. So it's a, I think it's a, I think it's just a really tough time for homebrewing. I think it's going to be a lot of like Northern Brewer and more beer and some of those guys like kind of keeping that torch going until it picks back up again. Yeah, it's tough, and I don't know 100% what it's from. I would assume it's from, I mean, even in, like, 2012-13, it was very clear that, I mean, Bruin TV got in at the very peak and made it fun and made it this, that, and the other thing, and then it dropped. And then, I mean, I honestly think it's partly because there's just so many breweries. Like, you can go get, for the most part, what you want somewhere, granted, what my homebrewing has come back to is stuff that I can't get, whether that's Norwegian farmhouse ales or even just other beers that, like, you know, everybody around me is making hazies or, like, crispies. And so I think that's part of it. And then the other part of it is just, like, I don't know. I think people don't have the time for it, which is weird because we all did. But... So that's something I've I've tried to wrap my head around. It's like, all right, how do we not make this seem like a microwave meal, but also maybe not take as long as we know it can take? So I don't know. It's tough. And I know that from, like, surveys that we've put out. Like, people's biggest complaint is the time it takes to do it and then the time it takes to wait to get it. So it's like... I don't know, it feels like the answer is just go out and buy the beer you want, but I don't want that to be the answer, <laughs> obviously. I want to encourage people to, like, figure out, it's like cooking, right? It's like you can go out and buy the thing you want, or you can, like, cook it and own it and understand it a little bit more. I think everybody just needs to read the short and shoddy series on philosophy, and then they can fill all the corners that they need. Yeah, 20-minute boils. <laughs> the, I mean, the tough thing with cooking hey, for, right, for an like, twenty-minute boil—that's crazy. It's got to be thirty. You know, with with cooking, you'd be like, "What am I in the mood for to eat this evening?" And two hours later, yeah, you've got it. Not like word home brewing is a little bit more. What am I going to be in the mood for a month from now? Yeah, I mean, I've definitely thought more about that. I know you like, can do a brisket. How do I lean into the chop side of this? Because that's. So, I mean, the most popular videos on our channel are food, and that's some shit you can turn in a night, but it's like, in the end, it's not what I'm most interested in, so I don't know. That's part of what I've been questioning myself, is like, all right, well, how do we find some food things? Because, I mean, especially on YouTube, right, it's like a question of what, like, what, what are people looking for? And they're probably looking for food general use stuff more than they are like how do i back sweeten the mead which is very specific yeah i'd wonder like how many so, so you know food related youtube channels that have say a hundred thousand subscribers um and then there's probably zero homebrewing channels that have a hundred thousand subscribers right oh yeah i mean CH has been doing a good job of this, uh, the dude at Homebrew for Life. He's actually been, I would call it reporting, basically. He's been reporting. I mean, the claw hammer hit 100,000. Right. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, 
CH has been talking a lot about why home brewing will never be what cooking is, even like whiskey review. It's just, it's, I don't know, maybe we need to figure out another thing to call it. <laughs> maybe it's not called home brewing. Maybe it's called, I don't know, but that's, that's kind of the point, right? It's like, you have to be pretty engaged. But like, how else do creators kind of figure out that space while they're waiting for people to come to? I don't know. It's it's tough. And I definitely get my ass kicked every week. Like, I don't put nearly as many videos out as I used to. When I do, I just sit there and beat myself up because like, other people put a video out in twelve hours and get like all like five times as views. I'm just like, I don't know how to beat the algorithm, but. Part of me doesn't care because I've got a day job. At this point, Chop and Brew is like, here's all the things I'm obsessed about that Northern Brewer may not be able to work into our schedule. And that's that's fine because I've got plenty of stuff from the past to edit. There's always something, you know, moving forward, hot sauces, barbecue. I do think I'm going to lean into food, though, because, again, some of the food episodes have been the most I mean, my top 10 all-time episodes, I'd say six of them are food. And I think that's just YouTube, right? It's like YouTube is going to get you what people are actually looking for. So I don't mind that. It's, it's a little unfortunate that, you know, I put this much effort into every video and then they get this much views. And But I have a small handful of Patreon supporters. I've got one sponsorship from imperial i mean it's it's it 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 convinces me to keep going on every month just on those but i could get more people involved and i don't know how to do that i might be too old shit man i'm 44 all of these guys i compete against have got to be under 40 so they've got more wherewithal they've got more networking probably so i'm just trying to keep it real in my own little space well i think what i think is interesting is it's kind of like barbecue like the difference between making like good at home barbecue and like not is like there's a learning curve right and the same thing with homebrew like you can you can throw a beer together and it and it'll be okay but to like I think a lot of the brew homebrew beer I drink, like the stuff Haven sends me, the stuff I swap with people. Um, I just had a guy over this afternoon that brought me some of his homebrew Amber Lager, and it, it's better than most of what you get at the store. But again, like the experience it took to get there, it, it's like there's a there is a learning curve that has to happen. And so, how do we make that educational component, that learning curve? Like, how do we shorten that time? That, that seems like the big question to me. Right. And it might be books. <laughs> it might not be video. I mean, videos seem more obvious, but it's like books are something you can go back to time and time again. That's why, I mean, the classes we do at Northern Brewer, I feel like are a good, they're a good kind of mashup of like a book and a video. It's like, if you want to go back to this section over and over, you can. But yeah, I don't know, man. I mean... So you're saying John Palmer, books. how to brew necessary for all people, John Palmer, how to it, brew, then you're good. It, 
it might be right or I, I don't know I'm a huge fan I was just reading it again today a little bit like uh, Charlie Papazian's Microbrewed Adventures it came out like after all of the joy to homebrews where he's just like traveling around the country and the world and he's dropping these recipes granted some of them I was looking at today I was like man that is so old school like why are you talking about boiling this honey like blah 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 but like he you know he went to New Glarus he went to Chimay he went to it's just fun right to like see early on who wanted to get out there and at least let us know some of those secrets it's always cool man there's so many I mean I was watching a video the other day that was talking about how hip-hop basically creates a new generation every four years even though that's such a tight generation but because of the way movements work and I feel like that's actually the way I feel like people want to act like homebrewing hasn't changed since like the early 2010s but it really has and it, it's because it changes with actual beer with craft beer I mean I would argue the same thing almost like every two or four years I mean it's because there's a there's always somebody that's got to be 21 plus but then somebody who cares within that group and then so yeah it's it's really interesting i keep wanting to think that like there's a charlie papazian era and then us but i'm like no i mean i was part of that us back in 2010 now it's been at least three generations since then so it's it's tough like how do you keep convincing people that making beer or fermented beverages is interesting because you know for the most part you can buy everything you want and or find somebody but there is something interesting to having that happening in your own home the pops the airlocks and the numbers no matter how nerdy you want to get about them you know checking on that every day it really is like like a long slow food process I, mean, I do think the like the freshness of homebrew is one of those things that's hard to beat i, mean, I live on the east coast and i I'm, I'm reluctant these days to buy a california ipa because sometimes they're incredible and sometimes it's like cardboard crap like you know in or even like local breweries they they can their beers they they may not have the best canning process and, and and some of those beers are great on tap they don't last very long in the can whereas you know I have a keg sitting in a fridge you know that it was transferred into that I'm avoiding oxygen and it to me that that's to me why I homebrew to someone of San is that I can like I don't say I could brew better beers than what they can brew commercially but I can have better tap beer on tap at home than what I can buy commercially. Yeah. And and it's also, you know, to some extent it's, there's the cost of being at a pub versus, you know, the $8 pints or, when you get to that point, the the cost of homebrewing starts to be competitive when you're talking $8 pints at a pub versus, you know, $40 for the ingredients to brew five gallons of beer. For me, I got into home brewing because the um, all the breweries in West Coast kept going more and more hoppy, more and more hoppy, more and more hoppy, and that's not the direction I like. So I'm like, I can't find it. I can't. I, I kept going to craft places. I couldn't find the beer I wanted. I couldn't find just like a nice amber or something that's nice, you know, something that's malt forward. And 
everything was hop forward and and so I started home brewing and now I'm now I'm making the beers I like and now I'm starting to see some of the craft breweries are starting to move back towards my direction where you now when you go there there's usually something that's malt forward and it's not all just hop bombs. Yeah, I feel like home brewing's kind of gone back. It's a little weird pendulum. It's like well, if you don't like fruited sours and hazy IPAs, you pretty much have to kind of figure out how to make it again, whether that's a pale ale, whether that's an English pale ale or English bitter. I mean, I feel like we're kind of swung back to why a people originally homebrewed, right? Because they couldn't find what they, were, what they wanted to get. That's why I did it. Well, and I'll be honest, like hazy IPA, even if you like hazy IPA, like this, most of the stuff you get on tap, even local, is like not very fresh. Whereas if you make a hazy IPA yourself, you're going to get the freshest, best version of that, um, at least in my area. Because by the time I get them, they're all kind of like, meh. <laughs> what I found is after I started making my own beer, um, I just started noticing just how out of balance all the, a lot of the craft breweries in the area are. They're just... The beers they make just aren't balanced. They're too, but they're too much this or too much that. There's, you know, which I guess it's kind of like barbecue. Once you start making barbecue, you like. It's hard for me to go to a barbecue place because most barbecue places, because they have margins to hit, they have to cut corners, and they can't make that barbecue like they would for their family in the backyard. And I can taste the difference. Well, too, like when I compare uh, homebrew to brisket all the time, like it's one thing if you're making one brisket in your backyard, like you're going to put a lot of TLC in that thing. Versus if you're making 100 briskets in your your, uh, restaurant, it's a little harder to pay that much attention. So like homebrew, too, like you're you're it's your baby and you're focusing on it. So that's that's really important. Um, but that said, we, we've had you for about an hour and 45 minutes, Chip. Like, if you need to bail, man, you're cool. You've given us so much time. We really are thankful for it. You're awesome. You're also welcome to sit here and chill and drink beer. It's whatever you want to do. Like, we, we're just so thankful to have your time. But why don't we talk about something really happy instead of uh, the, the decline and fall and the eventual rise of homebrew. Let's talk about you still want, happy, you still want man. That, like, you still uh, want that, uh, the tur- that smoked turkey recipe? <laughs> yep. Brine it, inject it. The 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 brine is obviously salt. The injection is going to be uh, uh, butter and um, and maple syrup uh, combination. Um, then rub it with some kind of spicy rub, like a Creole rub. Um, when you the the a pro trip when pro tip on your on your turkey is when you're getting your smoker up to speed, bring your turkey out and then set it on the counter and put a bag of ice on the breast. <clears throat> it keeps the breast cold longer and lets the dark meat start to warm up. And so when you put it, when you cook it, your your um, breasts aren't going to cook so much faster than the dark meat. What so the fuck? I, like the, the bone, ice. the bone and the br- the bone and the dark meat kind of start to warm up. Yeah. So you, you, as as you're bringing your smoker up to speed, um, you don't want to do it for hours, but for like you know 15, 20 minutes. You're gonna you're gonna have it sitting out on the countertop after you've rubbed it and injected it and everything, and you have a bag of ice just sitting on top of the breast, and that's gonna keep the ice, the breast cold as the as the, the bone meat starts to come up to temperature a little bit, and that's gonna 
going to make it so that when your um, when your breast is about 162, the the dark meat is going to be uh, much closer to the the temperature you want. That's awesome. I've never heard of that. Is that That's, just from your own experience, or somebody somebody you? I don't know. I, I'm I'm a research guy, so you know, 15, 20 years ago when I started getting into barbecue back in 2006, I think. Um, I just was researching every, you know, everywhere. And so I, I come across stuff and I think I came across that particular chip on, um, there's a website for the, uh, Smoky Mountain Weber called the virtual bullet. I'm pretty sure that I saw that in that, in a recipe in that site. writing that down and then basically when I when I do that I, I pull the whole thing when the um, when the breasts get to 162 for about five minutes so I don't I don't run it up to 165 and let it rest for five minutes no so um, the FDA or whoever whoever tells you what the safe, safe temperatures for food is, they always say 165 is uh, is for um, turkey, but that's three seconds at 165 is going to kill everything. But for when you get up to 162 for three to five minutes, that's enough time at that temperature to kill off anything. So you don't have to run it all the way up to 165. You can run you can cook it at 162, and and have very safe food. And then that, that three degrees is the difference between a moist turkey and a dry turkey. Nice. There's a, there's a spot up here called Baker's Ribs. And I've been led to believe the only other place they exist in the, is in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. But for some reason, the 14th location is here in minnesota because uh, the guy loves the lake culture up here and man he brings the smoked turkey brisket ribs he does the sausage but he does it with a little twist kind of like maple syrup and red pepper flakes to kind of bring it upper midwest but man the turkey he's one of the few people that do turkey and that was one of me and elsa's favorites in austin it's like to go get that turkey, oh, so good when people know how to do it. Well, the, the, again, to get a natural turkey, brine it, inject it, and rub it. And when you rub it, rub it under the skin, not above the skin. Get your hand in between the skin and the meat and, and put the rub inside there. So turkey, brine, inject, rub. Yeah, and you want the you want your injection sweet, and you want your rub spicy. That's going to give you nice um, um, mouth explosion when the turkey's done. You get the sweet, you get the sweet turkey, but you get the the spicy crust or the spicy skin. Oh, also, also, even though you're smoking it, still cook it at three twenty-five to three fifty. Otherwise, oh, you get, otherwise you get rubber skin. That's the temp the whole time. Yeah, so it cooks super fast. I mean, every time I cook a turkey, like a 12-pound turkey, I'm always amazed at how fast it cooks. 
like three That's or four hours. True. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, we, yeah, every Thanksgiving we do a turkey, and I'm like, that did not take nearly as long as I thought. It's like we're led to believe it's going to take longer. It's not a thick cut of meat. It's like a, it's like a weirdly proportionized, right? It's like if you were well, just when we were kids, less. when we were kids, they when we were kids, they were making twenty four pound birds. But I would, I would never, I would, I would never smoke a twenty-four pound bird. I would only, I, I don't smoke anything bigger than a, a twelve and a half pounds, maybe thirteen, uh, because it, because the if you smoke a bigger bird than that, you run the risk of it having having the inside of the meat get in the danger zone for longer than you want it in the danger zone. So if you want more turkey, make two twelve pounders instead of one twenty pounder. Have you ever spatchcocked that bird? I have never spatchcocked. Um, every time yeah. I tell my, every year I tell myself I'm going to do it, and every year I'm like, "Fuck it, I'm not doing it." Yeah. I could see that. It's a good bit of work, but I have also thought about like, man, it does make sense, man. You could get smoked on the inside, outside, side, side. So yeah. Let's take it. I mean, we bought one last year that we've yet to do. So I've got a whole turkey in my freezer right now. And I'm like, let's just do it. You see what is you it, know? Is I mean, it a natural? Is it, August. is it a natural? Is it a natural bird? Do you know? Uh, Yeah, for sure. So you, you want natural. You want no salt added to it because otherwise it won't take the brine. Oh, why, what's the difference between a natural bird and whatever? So, like, you know the butter balls where it's got the little the thing? So those are basically um, injected with salt. So it's, it's kind of like a brining process that they do to them. And a lot of birds, they do that because it makes for, you know, the salt, the, the brining process makes a better bird. So a lot of places sell you birds that are already injected with salt. That's kind of like a, a, a brine process. But, okay. But if, you are, if it already has that salt, then it won't take a brine, a natural brine. So you want, it, you want the bird to say natural. No salt. Because if it, if it's already been brined, it'll basically block that brine out. Yeah, you're because it's already absorb- it's already saturated with that stuff. Yeah, so basically they've already got salt in there. So once it already has salt in there, it's not going to take a brine. And I mean, I guess you could argue that the their brine is as good as my brine, but I would argue that the brine there's 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 something that more to the brining process than just sticking some chemicals on a bird. And the brining process is also one of the things that keeps it moist. What do you know about that buttermilk? The what? The buttermilk. I don't I know anything about buttermilk. People talk about the buttermilk brine all the time. No. Never. Nope. Never. I I just do salt. So my understanding of brine is it's salt, and um, it's salt and sugar and and water and that's. You know that's where all the that's where all the, the chemical is happening. The chemical react it's all the chemical reaction, and then when you put in flavors, every flavor you put into the brine is just so when you're actually um, pulling the bird out and getting it ready in the morning, it smells more like like thir- uh, thir- like Thanksgiving. So it's it just <laughs> makes it smell nicer. It doesn't have any impact on the final flavor. But I still cut up oranges and onions and rosemary and toss it in my brine knowing it has no impact on the flavor i just like the way it smells hmm. 
sage and rosemary yeah yeah just just thanksgiving flavors you know just toss it in there Okay. Man, I think a lot of them are going to bail out as well. Like, yeah, I should oh, probably balance, man. I'm hearing, I'm hearing the wife stomping upstairs. So, and I appreciate it. this was appreciate fun. it, man. It actually, yeah, it made me think of some things I hadn't thought about in a minute. So, that's always my favorite when we can kind of brainstorm some new ideas. That's fun. Well, appreciate you, brother. Have a great night. Yeah, man. I, I love Texas. <laughs> Cheers, right. y'all. Bye. Cheers. Uh, I turn away for a second. Everyone leaves. <laughs> All right. Well, it was, a, it was good chatting with you guys.